I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So the books that you read when you're a kid are probably some of the most important books you will ever read. Because, sure, they teach you how to read or how to follow a story or what words are. But they actually become portals. Depending on your age, seeing an old copy of a book by Maurice Sendak or Shel Silverstein or Robert Munch, even just hearing those names now, can bring back memories that make you feel at home. So for a lot of kids growing up right now, the author who wrote that book that's going to become really important from your childhood is the Canadian illustrator John Clausen. In 2011, he kind of came out of nowhere with this massive book called I Want My Hat Back, which is about a bear looking for his lost hat. And that book becomes this really successful bestseller. And then everything that came next, books like This Is Not My Hat, The Rock from the Sky, Sam and Dave Dig a Hole, these stories get the highest honor in kids' literature, which is not the Caldecott or the Governor Generals, though John has those too, but they become instant bedtime stories that are beloved by kids. And the real story here is that John Clausen does things that kids love, the way his characters have wide eyes that pop out of their faces, but also look kind of suspicious. And kids also love how John trusts them with more mature themes. I mean, have a listen to this. I want my hat back. This is not my hat. By who? John Clausen. This book is about a fish that got eaten by another fish. And then he said, you stole my hat. And that's all about stealing. And that's not proper stealing. Okay? Okay, that's so cute. Uh, Those are kids talking about John Clausen, who has had a lot to celebrate this year. Uh, His Shape books were turned into an Apple Plus TV show called Shape Island. He released a brilliant new book based on a folktale. It's called The Skull. That book has since been nominated for a Governor General's Literary Award. And earlier this year, Tom Power got the chance to speak with John Clausen and hear his story. Here's their conversation. Hey, John, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for being here. Where where are you? Are you in LA? I'm in LA. Yeah, I was in I was in Korea like 24 hours ago, but I'm I'm adjusting and I'm doing all right. <laughs> what what brought you to Korea? They were doing a museum exhibit on myself and Mac Barnett, who writes a lot of the books I illustrate. And there was this great kids museum over there, and we were over there for a week, just turning around. It was great. How was that? What what is it like being in Korea and there being a museum museum exhibit of your work? It's a trip. It's like flying, you know, 13 hours and then landing and seeing a bunch of your sketches on the wall and kids running around. You don't get over that very quickly, I don't think. It's, I'm not sure you ever do. <laughs> Going that far and seeing your own books is pretty wild. Do you get back to Canada at all? Yeah, as often as I can. I was. We were back in Toronto last summer for about a month and a half because we hadn't been back in so long. That did me a lot of good. The we, I guess, is, is you and your family. Yeah, I've got two boys, four and six now. 
and my wife. Four and six. So like when you were that age, when you were like four and six, I know you grew up in Winnipeg and, and uh, you're from Winnipeg, which you grew up in Niagara, around the Niagara Falls area. If you were four or six and, and we were buddies, what, what would we be getting up to? In between there, in between Winnipeg and Niagara, I was in the suburbs of Toronto. We had this townhouse that sort of backed onto this giant vacant lot that promised to be a school and just never was. And so we would hop the fence pretty young and just go back there and dig up bricks or bury dead hamsters or whatever, you know, the day demanded. But I think we'd probably do some vacant lot time. <laughs> you, you, you were sort of an outdoors kid. Yeah, I think so. As much as a suburban kid can be, but it did feel like there was a lot of outdoors, even though we were in the middle of the of the city. It just felt like, because there was always, maybe this has changed now, but it felt like the suburbs still had like undeveloped patches that were felt as big as forests anyway. And so trees and streams and ponds and things were never very far away. Oh, I know what you mean. I grew up in the suburbs too. And there was the, in St. John's and I, I, I never thought about that before. They weren't fully developed. There was still like a river behind my house and there were still trees. Exactly. You know? Yeah, you still feel like you grew up in the country, even though your house was like four months old. Yeah, even though your house was f- uh, five minutes from a Burger King. And then <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was I was reading about your childhood and teenage years in Niagara. And one thing I read, you say, you said, yeah, I had a lot of jobs, given that there's so much tourism. I had a lot of jobs involving period costumes. What, what jobs and, and what costumes? Niagara has a lot of historical houses and, you know, those old places where wars happened and changed hands and they were hospitals and then they were houses and then they were hospitals again or something. And so my first job was as a tour guide. I I spoke French because I went to French immersion. And so I got hired as a tour guide slash, I guess, tea brewer for like a tea house slash historical house. But they had, they, yeah, they made you wear like historical clothing, which was like felt pants and and heavy vests and things. And this was like August in Niagara. (laughs) And I would bike to work because I didn't, you know, I was too young to drive. And so I'd get there after like an hour drive down the parkway and then they'd give you the felt pants and you just sweat your way through because they didn't have air conditioning either. The houses were historical, so you couldn't put any AC in there or anything. And we just sit there brewing tea with our felt pants, just sweating all summer. It was great. I wasn't expecting it was great at the end of that, to be honest. Well, it was. I mean, in retrospect, it was great. I think it probably only lasted one summer. But as far as summer jobs go, you could do worse. I guess so. So so when you were a kid, what kind of books were you reading? I know like, I know you, you, you've talked about like you know, early memories at your grandparents' house, right? They lived in Niagara, and they had held on to all my dad's books, and those were mainly the books I had access to. We didn't have a ton of books at home, um, not kids' books anyway, but they had had five kids, my grandparents had, and so they were, I think they had like book clubs back then that would deliver you books, you know, that were cheaper than picture books are now, and so they had this whole row of like Dr. Zeus and P.D. Eastman reader books, you know, those, that specific kind, and so they had like 50 of them, and I had never seen these things before, and so I got really into those, and just the general aesthetic of those, whatever was going on in the 50s and 60s, picture book-wise, really stuck hard, and then later, probably the same kind of thing, where my dad just had rows of, like, Hardy Boys books, and so I feel like, book-wise, I grew up in, like, the 60s, sort of, you know, that aesthetic. Right. You're almost like a musician who grows up in the 80s and 90s, but like listens to the music of the 40s and 50s and 60s. That's sort of what happened, too, is actually I was listening to music from the 50s and 60s, and I didn't really understand new music for a long time. I'm sorry, so sorry. I didn't 
Is there something old-fashioned about your work then? I mean, I know it's hard to be a, a judge of your own work, but just given everything that you just told me? I think so. I don't want to throw back and be nostalgic for the sake of it, you know, but I think that there's a, I'm attracted to what printing looked like back then. There was a sort of a limitation to the palette and especially older books. They're sort of faded when you find them later. And just that whole softness, I never really wanted to be very loud with my colors or anything. So I think uh, that's part of why my books look the way they do. I think also, I don't really know what to do with color. I wasn't really trained as a, as a painter that way. And so color intimidates me, but but it's also, I think, yeah, my memories of those older books. Like, when did you figure out you were you were into drawing, or you like you had a uh, an aptitude for drawing? Pretty early, I think, like grade one or two. At least that's when I started remembering getting encouraged to do it. Anyway, grade three, we started keeping journals and stuff in school, and I remember really vividly, sort of, we had to write what we did at recess, and I just remember being very bored by that, and so I wrote ghost stories instead and did little ghost illustrations in the margins just to make sure I knew where everything was in the cave or in the forest or wherever these stories took place. And it wasn't so much because I I thought the drawings were good as much as sort of getting information across. Like, if I don't want to say where everybody is in a given scene, I can just draw it. And I felt that was much easier than writing it, and I still feel that way, where it's like I mostly like to illustrate when there's new information in the picture, so I don't just supplement the writing. I think for people who would know you, they might think that this story is going to be pretty predictable at this point. Oh, okay, Tom, I understand. So John <laughs> w- w- fell in love with his dad's children's books growing up, and you know, loved P.D. Eastman and loved uh, Dr. Seuss, and. You know, oh, he finds that he's good as drawing, and then eventually he finds his way to being a, a, a children's book author or a children's book illustrator. But no, there's like a bunch of stuff in between. I mean, for one that I find really interesting is like you were working in big studio projects. You were working for like uh, DreamWorks doing Kung Fu Panda. I'm not a big fat panda. I'm the big fat panda. Coraline. Making up a song about Coraline. She's a peach, she's a doll, she's a pal. Talk to me about the jump to book illustration. I didn't know that books were a job until I almost had the job. I don't, no one ever told me that it was a viable thing. Or I don't even, I hadn't even met anybody who did it. I just didn't think people still did this. I I was working for the studios, but the studio work was very complicated, just visually. And I was sort of, I was learning really quickly. You know, you get your tools. When you're drawing that much, you just sort of end up finding tips and tricks that you want to try out yourself. But the things I wanted to point those tips and tricks at were much simpler. I think almost as a reaction to how complicated the film work was, I started making pictures that were very simple. And I missed drawing letters. I really liked drawing type and letters. And so I would do pictures with type. And it ended up looking, you know, simple pictures with type next to it. Looks a lot like a picture book. And so almost in like a reverse engineering kind of way, I started to hear from publishers being like, you know, this looks like books. And I was like, it does. And then I started to get book work. And as soon as I started to do it, so much of what I was had been thinking about in terms of what I like to draw or even how I like to tell stories just clicked. I found this format that just fit all of that. But was there any anxiety? Like, was there any anxiety about like, hey, I, I have a pretty good career going in this very, I mean, to be honest, very digital form, very collaborative form. And I know there's still collaboration in your work, but was, was there, were there any nerves about about changing over? There was, but I think the way it was set up, I had some sort of multi-year contracts and I sort of finished up whatever I had so I could close the door very gently and quietly so that if I ever did need to come back, I hadn't burned the house down. And I thought when I left, you know, let me, you know, I've I got a crush on this sort of thing, but this can't be a job. There's no way. 
So I'll just do this for a few years to say I tried it, and then I'll apply back to the studios, and that seemed fairly safe. And then I just never, I never did. Books just worked out. Like you said, the, the first book that I did, so we had really good luck with it, and it's just, we've kept getting lucky. You're listening to Q. I'm Tom Power. I'm speaking to the best-selling Canadian illustrator, John Clausen. Now, the song you're hearing right now is actually on the top of John's drawing playlist. It's called Mother's Love by the late Ethiopian singer Amahoy Tsike Mariam Gubru. You can almost picture John Clausen in his studio listening to this, drawing an armadillo who's feeling uneasy, or a sneaky triangle trying to play a trick on a square, or a worried crab who's just witnessed a crime. John Clausen is the type of artist who can say a lot with very few words. And up until this point, we've been talking about how John fell in love with books and his previous career working for a big shot animation studio. But now he's going to tell you a bit about how he developed the signature style that made him who he is and what it was like to step out on his own and some of the pushback he got when he was shopping his first book around. Not from kids, but from adults in the industry. One of your last animation projects before you went into books was this music video for U2. It was this song called I'll Go Crazy If I Don't Go Crazy Tonight. Yeah. That is U2, and I'll go crazy if I don't go crazy tonight. I mean, I don't know how much you had to do with this, but one thing I noticed when I rewatched the music video getting ready for this interview is that, like, the characters in that video do sort of have the Clausen eyes, like the wide eyes with the big pupils <laughs> that look that look a bit sh- shifty. Yeah, I made that video with a friend of mine, David O'Reilly, who's a very, very good animation director, and he was making short films at the time. We've always been, the both of us, pretty uh, preoccupied with eyes, I think. As far as animation goes, I think I like David's work because he's very stiff with his animation. He doesn't count on a lot of fluid acting to sell whatever he's doing. And that's how I am also. I don't enjoy showing characters being very physically expressive. It's it's mostly in the eyes. The the eyes of your, your characters have sort of become a trademark of your work. Where, where, where did those eyes come from, those sort of I don't want to say dead eyes, but the sort of unexpressive Clausen eyes come from. I think they're a mixture of a few things. There's a printmaker, a Japanese printmaker from, I think he's from the 50s, called Aseki, A-Z-E-C-H-I, I think. And he did a lot of block prints. And I saw one of his, and it's called, I think it was called The Mountaineer. And he was standing there holding a mug and smoking a cigarette. But he was very, very simple. It looked like he sort of caught him coming out of dinner or something, and he didn't want to be drawn. <laughs> And I loved that. I was like, that's how I feel about drawing characters is people who like feel put upon to be drawn or brought into a book at all. And so many of my characters assume that too, where they're just looking at you like, can I go? Is the book done? I want to go home. Like, I don't want to do this story anymore. You know, I'll look at these characters and they do see, (laughs) you do seem kind of annoyed that I'm, that I'm reading about them. Yeah, that was my way into drawing characters at all. It's like the only way I believe in any characters at all is if they are sort of day players who would rather have not come in today. Thank you very much. And it works for, like, I try and write around it so that it, you know, it works for the story, too, that they all look a little confused. But um, but my very deep down, I sort of have a suspicion that none of my characters really wanted to be there that day. 
Oh, that's so funny. Uh, one of your the first books you illustrated, Cat's Night Out, wins the Governor General's Award in 2010. But the book that really lights your career on fire is a book called I Want My Hat Back, which eventually becomes a trilogy. So what we asked, uh, we asked uh, the kids of some of our good friends and, and producers here on cue if they would uh, if they would give us for people who are listening to this who may not know the book as well if they would give us a summary so this is a summary from our friend Daisy who is six years old it's about a bear that lost his hat he goes to a fox he goes to a frog he goes to a bunny and he actually has his hat and the bear doesn't notice so then he goes to the turtle climbing up the rock and then the bear remembers where his hat is and then he said you stole my hat john how do you how do you feel like daisy did just then i think that that was wonderful that was bang on when, when did it hit you that that book was a was sort of a life changer it took a minute. Books, you know, especially because I wasn't really well known when that book came out. I remember kind of taking it around to book trade shows and getting as much pushback as people who liked it. You know, it's a kind of a weird one. And the only way I could think to pitch it was to sell it or was to read it to them. And so I'd read it to them and then you'd look up to see what the reaction was. And half the time it was delight and half the time it was just horror. And like, I didn't know what I had. I didn't know the book, like landscape. I didn't know what we were, how it was going to do and at all. I thought we'd just as soon sink as float. So yeah, I was shocked. And I continue to be shocked that this stuff gets around as much as it does. Is is the reason you got the pushback because of of the ending, like I should say for people who haven't read it, the ending of I Want My Hat Back, which is a, which is a children's book, it's implied <laughs> that the bear who loses his hat eats the rabbit who stole it. I mean, is that is that the reason you were getting the the pushback? It was that. And it was also that when he finds the rabbit initially wearing the hat, the rabbit lies very elaborately about not having ever, even seen a hat, much less stolen his. And he's wearing one. But the bear is kind of in the rhythm of the story by then, so he doesn't even look. And then when he is confronted at the end with where where is this rabbit gone, he uses the same phrasing to say I haven't eaten any rabbits as the rabbit used earlier. And so not not only was it sort of portraying potential murder for this hat theft, <laughs> but it was also, you know, apparently saying if you lie about it, that's the only way through. And that wasn't, you know, I don't see these stories as endorsements so much as just like interesting observations on how something might go. And I think the kids get it that way, too. And also, we can have a talk afterwards about how stealing isn't right. They know that by now. But yeah, people who take children's books more literally as sort of like the kids are going to think they can do this, they weren't thrilled with that whole story. (laughs) What what, what do the kids tell you they like about it? I think kids like the mystery of it because the text doesn't say that the rabbit stole the hat, first of all. So the pictures say it and the kids feel ahead of the text, which is very important in a lot of my work is that the text is sort of the adult's domain or even, you know, if the kids are reading it, it still feels more authoritative. And then the pictures have a lot of the real information. And so they feel like they've got something on you. They feel like they've, they've, they're ahead of you and they like that. It makes them feel important and they are important. And so the book kind of acknowledges that. Oh, John, I love that so much. The idea that, I mean, I think about, you know, reading books to my niece and, you know, she's following along in the pictures and she can't read the, she's three and she can't, you know, she can't read the words. uh, So I'm reading them for her. And she's able, you're saying that she's able to look at these pictures and kind of get ahead of me, like get, get a little bit more information than I have. Yeah, and I wish I could say that that was because I understand children or something, but it's not. It's it's mostly me technically as an illustrator would get bored if 
I was doing the same information that we were writing down. And so just out of, you know, pure keeping myself into the project, if I have to either be behind or ahead of the text in any given situation when I'm drawing it. And that that makes me more interested, but it turns out it actually involves the kids a lot more too, and they get really into it when you do it right. I mean, and, and there's something to be said, and I think we're going to talk about this when we talk about the skull and we talk about folktales, the idea of stories for kids can be darker than maybe we th- we, we think they can be. I mean, there's a lot of, like, the, 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 the I Want My Hack Back kind of became a big meme, right, on, especially on, on TikTok, <laughs> and even millennials and Gen Z talking about it. Um, I want to play just a little bit of a TikTok reaction. Just take a listen to this. <laughs> this award-winning children's book tells the cute story about a bear that loses his hat and goes on a quest to get it back. You! You stole my hat! And then when the bear finally figures out who the thief is, he goes, Old Testament. It's a cute way to start a conversation about violent crime escalation. So I want to I want to point out that none of the kids we talked to were actually disturbed by the ending of the book. No! So I wonder if, if you could talk to me about trusting kids with stories that may be a little bit darker. I think I always liked dark stories when I was a kid because I was such a wimp about every other sort of media. I, I didn't love, I, I couldn't watch scary movies or scary TV. It was too much. But I found I had a lot of bravery when it came to books and scary stories and books. And so that made me feel brave. And I would go after them to make me feel that way over and over again. And so I think that knowing how fragile I was as a kid and my capacity for edgy, dark stories, I, I kind of have more rope there than maybe some other people would. I also just feel like, you know, having been reading books to kids these last this last decade, just because that's part of my job, whenever you do say, does anybody want to hear a scary story? no matter how long you've been in the room or how old the kids are, how rowdy they are, you can hear a pin drop after you say that. They really want to hear it. They want to see what you do. Also, I think that it's such an interesting challenge for a storyteller to do it right because you can do it wrong. If you're out to scare the kid, if you're out to just jump out from behind a corner and go, boo, that's easy to do, but it's also not the right way to go about it. They won't trust you after that. You have to establish some tone of trust and sort of integrity, and then they'll follow you around, and then you can take them to places that they might not have wanted to go before. But the work there is to get their trust and to keep it and to make sure that you are okay with them and they're okay with you. That is such a cool goal, such a cool aim. And I also loved hearing John talk earlier about putting um, messages in the pictures so that the kids who are looking at the pictures as the adults are reading the text are kind of ahead of the game and they know things that the grown-ups don't know yet. You'll hear more of uh, John's conversation with Tom coming up, including how having his own kids informs his philosophy about children's books. That's coming up on Q. Hey, I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We are the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. So often the talk about children's stories and media for kids is, you know, we're going to form you where you have some you have something to learn here. And it just assumes that they're not people yet. They're not complete. And they are complete. I love that idea that maybe in kids books, uh, just like in adult books, there doesn't have to be a 
a lesson, necessarily. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of Tom's chat with the author, John Clausen, who, as you just heard, doesn't believe in in talking down to your kids. John is a best-selling, award-winning children's writer, and if you or your kid is a fan of his books, like the Hat or Shapes trilogy, uh, you know he's not trying to hit you over the head with morals or lessons, and he's not going to keep you from the darker parts of the story either. In that way, John Clausen is honoring traditional children's folktales, stories passed on through generations that were a little scary, maybe might be rated R by today's standards, but have captivated kids' imagination for ages. Earlier this year, Tom talked to John Clausen about his newest release called The Skull, which is actually based on an old folktale. The book was also nominated for a Governor General's Literary Award. Here's the story. A girl who has run away from home befriends a mysterious skull without a skeleton attached to it. But there are some differences between John Clausen's version of the skull and the original folktale. And the reason for that is really interesting. It all goes back to how John came across the story in the first place. And I will let John pick up the story from here. I was in a library in Alaska doing a book event in Juneau. And I was waiting for my turn because there was a few of us up there doing an event. And so we were all reading. And while it was, I was waiting, I was reading the folktale section. I usually go to the folktale section in any given place because you can sometimes find weird local books and stuff that people have have made there and you find strange stories you wouldn't find anywhere else. But this time I found this book about ghosts and goblins and it was a pretty straightforward one, but I opened the table of contents and there was a story called The Skull. And it was only three or four pages long and I read it really quickly before my my event. And then I put it back in the shelf and, you know, did my thing and got on the plane and went home. But I kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking about I think just the general setup, but I read it so fast that I, I got blurry on the on the details. And it wasn't until like a year later when I just kept thinking about this story that I thought I should probably read that again. Let's let's take a look at that again. And so I wrote the library in Juno and said, I've got this story called The Skull in one of your books. Can you please find it? And the librarian was like, yeah, no problem. And sure enough, like she found it. I, don't, I didn't have a title. I didn't have anything. And she found it and scanned it and sent it to me. And I read it again. And I had changed like at least the last half in my mind and not knowing that I had. And I was like, this isn't what I remembered at all. But I still had access to the story I'd, I thought I'd read, the one that I'd apparently made up the last half of. And I liked it. And I thought, well, this story is obscure enough. I, I looked for a couple versions and there are a few, but they're hard to find. And so I thought, I think I can do this. I think that there's good reasons, both entertainment wise and just artistically to to give this a shot the way I thought of it or rethought of it. Um, and I was so interested in that because it does seem like what folktales do anyway is in the telling of them as they would spread around, even in the old times, they would change to get either more entertaining as far as the teller was concerned or depending on the, your audience or whatever, you'd find all sorts of different weird versions of these things. And so it felt organic to do it. I didn't feel like I was running off with something I shouldn't have been. I, I, that's that's so interesting. I mean, I, I, have, I find myself with the nerdy folklore background I have having that conversation a lot, you know, uh, explaining to people that, you know, some stories don't have authors at all and that you know, people would adjust some of the some of the references to be local ones if they were telling the in the you know, story in a different community. And I like the anonymity of it. I've always been attracted to folk art and anonymous art, and where it isn't signed, or if it's signed by someone, you just can't find them or something. There's something almost rebellious in folk art. I find because they're not doing it for the notoriety. It's part of a chain of something, and they're it, it feels like a different reason to make art than 
how we think of it traditionally, I think. Yeah, my friends who are like deep, deep folk musicians, I've often thought of them as being like far more punk or DIY than like any Fugazi or anything like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something, there's something like really, really uh, rebellious about it. And I can't quite pin down why, but like if you see just like the side of a barn painted by somebody anonymous, you're like, that guy was like raging against the machine in some way, even if it's a painting of like a cow. You're just like he was onto something. He was he was mad at something, and that's how this one felt too. It felt in the same way. Uh, the main character in the skull is a little girl, and I've heard you say in the past that you don't like drawing humans or using them as characters. Does this mean you're coming around to it now? <laughs> that, I couldn't believe it when I first started drawing. I said I was like, I can't believe I'm going drawing a person. It was the only way to do it, but it was a plunge. The story. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.